Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today we're going to talk Thelema. Thelema is the religion started by Aleister Crowley, and it and its founder are the subject of much scrutiny, misinformation, hero worship, and I think it's time that we cut through some of that misinformation and have a conversation with it from someone with a great deal of experience, and that person is our guest today, Bishop. Bishop is a instructor. Uh, he is a longtime Thelemite, a member of the OTO, and he's here to discuss not only Thelema and some of its practical applications in modern day, but also the magic community as a whole, and you know, offer some insight as someone who is a magic practitioner for a long period of time. Offer his insight and perspective on how we can grow the magic community, how we can learn from past mistakes, and perhaps how we can learn to appreciate the state in which it's in currently. I hope that everyone who is listening gains as much insight as I did. I know that um, I had a lot of questions about sort of the Lima, and, and, and I think that a lot of those questions were answered in a way that I oftentimes can't find online, be it so, certainly not in social media, but also even on some websites that sort of devote themselves to that. This is not necessarily a, an episode dedicated to um, uh, academic or factual information listing, but more practical application on how a thelema or any spiritual belief can be applied to our lives in a more meaningful way beyond hour-long ritual or the multiple rituals we do a day, but, but in our everyday life when we're driving the car, when we're making the food. And so I hope you all enjoy this as much as I did. I hope that you glean from it as much information as I did. And so without further ado, my guest today, Talking Thelema Bishop. The the idea for this, and really honestly, the idea for all the podcasts I've ever done, as I always was, I've been trying to capture that that feeling that I get when me and my friends sit around and, and bullshit over coffee, right? Or a drink. I, I'm very lucky that I have some wicked smart friends and I, I just, I love doing that. I mean, we used to stay up all night at Denny's yeah. in Corpus because it was the only thing that stayed up late and, you know, just talk about life and whatever. And so I've been constantly chasing that, recapturing that. And so I don't, I mean, I have a couple of notes, but it's, I, I just feel like if you put two people face to face as much as we can be face to face electronically and you just let them talk then that's the most compelling thing one can do, right? That's that's the gold. Otherwise, Absolutely. it's just an interview, and there's other people that do that, and I don't really have an interest in that. So, uh, Well, it's so funny you bring that up because my best friend and I, um, we no longer live near each other, but my best friend literally just came into town this week, and we oh, sat wow. on breakfast yesterday, which is something that we did on a regular basis. Right. Um, and we would sit down and have breakfast um, somewhere. And the one thing that we noticed – which was very interesting um, to us and started a, a, a seed idea was looking over and seeing these groups of guys, almost always guys um, sitting around a table and they're talking. And if you listen carefully, they're talking about life. They're talking about uh, what's going on in the world. They're talking about themselves. And then they're relating it back to scripture. Oh, and interesting. Tim, Tim and I sat down and went, they're having this morning 
prayer breakfast is what they're doing or the Bible study breakfast, uh, breakfast. And we thought, what happens if we turn that into a format to where people just sit down and have coffee or have a, uh, a donut or whatever and just talk? Yeah. Instead of trying to preach, which Crowley talks about not doing, but he talks about sharing the law all the time. What happens when we just sit down and talk? How do we get Thelema out of this kind of crazy uh, back and forth between I can't interpret, I'm going to interpret, or online now with all the influencers? We get it into the real world. How do we get Thelema to apply to life yeah. ourselves? What does it do to change your life? Because if you, I, I believe if you are what you were, then you've not meaning you've not changed, nothing's yeah. happened. And if we are to experience theme in the world, something has to change. And being able to pull it in, have a conversation of how does this issue, whatever it is, affect our lives and how do we apply Thelema to that? What in our holy books or corpus of Crowley's writings or whatever we want to call that, what applies that we can then make real that's right. going to change our lives and change the world around us? And it, it was a huge revelation for us. Well, isn't it interesting that in the occult spaces, whatever you want to call it, that the application of whatever one's spiritual belief may be, be it Thelema or witchcraft or whatever it may be, it, it seems like we don't discuss how it applies in our day-to-day life. It does, we don't talk about how do you apply your, your alleged spiritual belief when you're stuck in gridlock, you know? How do you apply it when um, you're having a fight with your partner? How do you yep. apply it when you're just listening to music? Like, how does it actually, why are we doing this? Because sometimes I feel like, especially when I've spent too much time on Twitter and I get a little jaded by it all, <laughs> I, I, I look at certain behaviors and not just on others, myself as well. I always try to have a kernel of humility knowing that if anyone could see me, from afar, I would just look like a madman doing, you know, karate <laughs> in the air. But why do we do all this if we don't apply it to our lives? If it doesn't have a meaningful impact from the moment we wake to the moment we sleep and beyond and into our sleep. And I think you're you're touching on it. It's like we don't discuss how it relates to our lives. Christians generally do. Certainly a Christian yes. that would have a, a prep breakfast. I mean, I went to um, my first year in university. I went to a Church of Christ church mm-hmm. uh university in abilene you're from texas you know abilene texas yeah, sure. and um i hated it. <laughs> it it actually that was the end of my christianity is that that experience but <laughs> but it, it was it was applicable in our lives in every aspect of our lives to the point where i remember uh i was going to go home for christmas and i had broken up or my, well we had broken up mutually a girlfriend that i'd had out of high school over the summer because I was going away to college and she was a year behind me and we broke up and she started dating my friend Bobby and it was a whole, you know, it was all that teenage angst and emo-ness and what have you. And when I went, when I was about to go home, the buddies in my dorm held like a prayer circle so that I wouldn't be uh, uh, lured or tempted by sexuality or I guess they thought I was getting the, I was going to go get laid or something when I went home. <laughs> but as funny as that is, like that was them saying like, Hey, let's apply it. Like this, this is like, this is not just a thing we do for an hour mm-hmm. or two a day. This is like the supplies spread over the entirety of our lives. And you do, I mean, the term practice what you preach kind of, I think applies. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm of the opinion that I'm a Thelemite. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not 
there's a lot of practices that I can incorporate into my daily life that come from all different uh, types of practices, all different types of perspectives, point of views, witchcraft, Wicca, uh, Buddhism, the Golden Dawn, whatever. But at the end of the day, my foundation, my spiritual foundation is writing on this little book of 220 verses um, that means everything. How do I take that and apply it? Um, how do I take that and apply it to the practices I'm bringing in? How do I apply that to my daily life? I've said in the past, if, if your spirituality isn't helping you pay the bills, helping you change the dirty diapers, helping you get out of uh, whatever trouble that you've got yourself into, then it doesn't matter if it's Thelema or Christianity or Buddhism, you're not doing anything. You're not right. practicing anything. It doesn't mean anything to you. It's got to it's gotta be internalized, not just talked about. I, I agree. And, and I think that, um, it, again, using the internet as a barometer for the, the, the way something is, is a bad idea because I've talked about this before. Only like 21% of Americans are even have a Twitter of those. Most of the conversation are dominated by, I think it's like 1%, you know, 1% dominate the vast majority of posts, 10% respond actively. So of that 21%, only 11% are even re relatively active on Twitter. Predominantly, it's middle-aged men who are uh, college-educated, white-collar, but you know they have time. On, they're sitting at the office on right. Twitter, predominantly, right? That's just what the studies show. So I try to remind myself because I look on Twitter and it's, I mean, when we're recording this, it's like a week or so away from the most recent firestorm of yelling and arguing and whatever. Right. But when I see that, even though I know it's not representative of the larger world, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you on this, about, especially about Thelema. I look at these comments from afar and I ask myself, why are you bothering because your life still seems like a dumpster fire. So what are you doing and why are you doing this? Like either it's not worked yet or it's not working or you're not applying it. Either right. which way, if that is how my life was going to end up, I would not be down for that. That would not be the path I would go, which is not to say that the path is wrong, but just the way that it seems to play out online. Absolutely. I, and I think we, when we look at these content creators and influencers or whatever term they want to go by, I think we're looking at that. And and I don't want to make a blanket statement. I want to be clear about that. I don't want to make a blanket statement. But at the same time, kind of uh, as a whole, what we see is these content creators taking a particular topic or a, a series of kind of related topics and torching it and seeing mm. what happens and seeing what kind of response gets. And sometimes these are very innocuous uh uh, topics. There's nothing wrong with them. They're great topics, but they're, everybody's got an opinion. And instead of listening, mm. instead of really sitting down and saying multiple perspectives of the same uh, topic can be okay. It's now, he said, she said, we've got to do all this. And, and we've, we've got these cults of personalities that have been built up and mm. that's not in my opinion. And I hate to use the word in my, or phrase in my opinion, because it's all my opinion, right. but, um, <laughs> It seems to me that um, we have these cults of personality and people bring up and they've got to defend their particular entity uh, and instead of really sitting down and let's talk about it. How do we, um, who is it, Georgina, is it mm -hmm. Georgia, Georgina, she has some amazing content, some amazing um, topics, but then it goes no further. 
And, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not dissing on her. I'm just saying that she's, she's got this content, but then what, you know, um, EIO, EIO 131, you know, he's been around for a couple of decades and, and, you know, there's some content there, but what now, yeah. where do we put it to use? And do the discussions that happen over coffee, those are the discussions that happen over donuts. I don't believe they happen over the internet very well, uh, you know, at any point. So, yeah, and I, I, just, I think that's, I, think, I mean, I obviously the we're, model. We're sitting in a dumpster fire, like you said, you know. Well, yeah, it, like it's the model, right? Twitter, we know because Twitter tends to be, we all moved off Facebook years ago, which was not much better, but Twitter is by its nature and structure, not conducive for nuanced topics it's just not it's just hard i mean i even when i want to respond in a in a meaningful way to something i end up like you know editorializing my my message to fit in the box which then makes me you know cripples my grammar and it starts to resemble some sort of proto language that cavemen used rather than a a well thought out and it certainly doesn't represent my my actual feelings there's no way you could fit it in there you you so that's just a, that's just the structure of Twitter. But then, but then you add in money and commerce. And I forget who said it, but someone said the occult community isn't a community; it's a marketplace. And uh, so credit to whoever said that because I can't remember who it was. But I think there's truth there, and I think that what you Absolutely. really what you really get is not a community. It's not the coffee shop. It's not the donut shop. It's not it's not that. What it is is there's a. Um, in Los Angeles, we have this flea market, essentially. It's, it's off Melrose, and it's all these booths, and they're all selling their stuff, and it's very crowded, and they're all selling their things. Now, if you take that and you – you let's say two people have a pottery, two pottery stands right across from one another, and they're yelling at people to come buy their pottery, right? Their used pottery, what have you. That's more, uh, more of an analogy for what we see online than I think – talking about it in terms of a community it's really everyone shouting to hey look my shiny object is better than that shiny object and they're it, whether they're conscious or not like by virtue of the fact that they want that money that's associated with that sale it it will lead people to some unscrupulous behaviors because they're being driven by either fame money or importantship and it overrides what we could be learning from one another, which is that there's yeah. this this patchwork of different spiritual paths, and they're all okay, and they all, if they work, if you know, if they're mm-hmm. leading you to a better life, right? If, like you said, if they're paying the bills, if if the success is in the proof, right? The proof is in the success, then then we could learn from one another. We could learn specific techniques from one another. We could take things Absolutely. that work for us and discard things that don't. But but we're all we're doing is we're haggling over prices and shouting over the other person and it's 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 noisy and I feel like it's I I feel like the biggest detriment is that it will be a it would be a turnoff for anyone who is genuinely looking for a path to better their existence in life. I I entirely agree. I and I think that's an excellent uh, analogy of this flea market of everybody setting up their own shop and hoping that somebody comes by and buys something. Uh, so that they can then feel rewarded um, instead of us all sitting down at a table uh, to have a conversation, to commune together. And I think mm-hmm. that what gets a lot of people, we have this language um, and language tra- transforms over time. But we have some language, especially in Philema, that is a carryover from what we call the previous aeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
a lot of people get turned off of that. You hear a lot about religious trauma and you hear a lot about, oh, I don't want to do this. You know, um, I've often said that a lot of people come to the occult because they're trying to piss off mommy and daddy. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and how do we do that? Um, yeah. We jump into the exact opposite of the way we were raised, only to find once you really dig deep that a lot of our language is exactly the same as what you had before. Yeah. Uh, and instead of reconciling that, they rebel against it. And then we have this, again, back to this whole personality conflict of, well, I've got my way and you can't tell me what to do. And, you know, nobody's trying to tell you what to do, first of all. But, um, you know, you're going to have to realize that a lot of this language over time has been around for thousands of years. We're going to utilize it our own way. Yeah. You know, let's let's move forward. So let's stop haggling over language and, and move on. Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I'm a metalhead, you know, I drew a lot of pentacles <laughs> and upside down pentagrams when I was a kid all over my notebooks. I went through my hot topic edge door phase as we all did, you know, because <laughs> I was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic. And when I was about 14, my mom said, you don't need to go anymore. If you don't want to, you're, you're old enough to make the decision. I'd like you to go, but you don't have to. And so I didn't, of course. Um, and then I went to, through a, a summer camp, I met some friends who went to the Church of Christ, which was like a, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but for those who aren't, it's like, it's, it's like strips everything cool out of religion out. And it's just, you know, it's just like, you couldn't even dance. Like dancing was forbidden. Like this no is like, music. For, I, not at the, not at the church service. It was all acapella. You could listen to music. Yeah. Like that was okay. Yeah. But not a but church all, service. There's no- there's no additional music. You can only do it a cappella. I mean, it's stripped down. Absolutely. And and they legitimately are against dancing. Like you cannot yeah. dance. It's like Footloose. Like that's kind of where I spent my, my high school years is sort of going progressively, right? Going to this church, culminating into me going to ACU. And so coming out of that, like I, like I joked earlier, but my experience in ACU was not only a turnoff to religion in general, mainstream religion in general, uh, but I also dealt with racism and what have you being there. Abilene's not the most progressive town in the world. And sure. um, I had that religious trauma for a while. So if you had told 25-year-old Dave, hey, man, let's start working with angels and archangels. He, he's not going to be into yeah. that, right? He's got a devil lock and he's got eyeliner. I mean, I still wear eyeliner, but whatever. Like, he, you know, <laughs> over years, over time, and as I, you know, read a bit about Buddhism, tried to understand witchcraft, which was impossible to find anyone who I felt was authentic in witchcraft when I was, when I moved to Los Angeles. And I've eventually worked my way up to essentially like a golden dawn style of magic. And now I'm working with angels and it was a little hard at first to sort of get over some of that, you know, backlog of hurt or whatever. Um, But I'm older. And so I recognize that the way something is presented doesn't mean it's the universal truth. And so Mm -hmm. perhaps what I was really wanting to battle against was not the idea of God or angels or any of those things, or even any, I mean, I love Catholic churches now. I'll go to the Anglican church from time to time, just, just to feel that energy, right. To feel that egregore. That wasn't the problem. The, The hate, you know, the bigotry, the selfishness, the greed, all that stuff. Yes, I am against that. But that stuff exists everywhere. So right. I, Absolutely. I, just, I just avoid it where I see it and I take the good of it and I get over some of those traumas. And again, I saw the impact on my life. And once I saw the impact on my life, well, then then that's all I needed, you know. And, and I don't feel like 
you're locked into one particular path because people's paths change from time to time. You know, you get something from someone and or something, and then you, you find that you find that you've come to an end to that journey and you move to another journey. And that's okay too. We're all floating around in this big giant universe, figuring it all out. I think we need to like relax a little bit on each other, give each other and, and ourselves a little bit of space to explore when we're dealing with these heady topics like God. Like I, I always joke like, how, how, who thinks they could put God in their box? Right. Put, put the fence around God. Like, Oh, I, my fence is the right God. It's like, that is so presumptuous to believe that any one of these things is the right thing. And especially when we talk about Thelema, it, it's not even a secret that Crowley took from a lot of different things that existed for, including do what they will. And he, combine them together he's the great curator he put them all together and and took what he learned from golden dawn and took what he learned from buddhism and took what he learned from peyote in mexico and whatever else and pushed it all together and that's how things evolve sure absolutely um i i think that when we look at and i think this is part of that whole language thing for mm -hmm. some people a path is a very specific kind of religious or spiritual ideal or thread that goes along, um, all of their different practices center around that thread mm -hmm. uh, or attach that thread. And other people's path is uh, moving from one practice to another, and that's their, you know, they kind of skip in stones, and that's their way of looking at a path. Um, for me personally, I, I tend to be more the thread kind of person. I, mm -hmm. There's a path that's a thread for me. Um, and then practices get uh, attached to that as I either learn about them or I've used them and they're successful. Um, things that aren't successful get removed, but I have that central line um, right. that remains. Um, so that happens to be my particular perspective of how path works. But um, I understand that the other people see it differently, that they'll they'll jump from, you know, one thing to another. And that's, and I, I think that's perfectly all right. Well, it also, we got to factor in age, right? Like, again, I'm, I'm going to be 41 in a couple months. You know, I've lived some life already. I've seen some stuff. I'm at a far different place now than I would have been at 20, 25, oh. 26, 35, 38, you know? <laughs> so and so see, I, I just, I just turned 52. So when I look at this and I go, well, I started, I, I was literally initiated into the OTO um, in the 1990. Okay. Um, so it's been 20 coming up on 22 years, uh, no, 32 years for me um, right. of having been in the order. Um, and I look at way back then, like early nineties of where we were. And I think, oh my God, <laughs> you know, the, I, I pull up stuff I've written or stuff that we, we were doing back then. I thought this was great. You know, we would sit, we we're talking about talking, we would sit on the, the steps of the, the apartment complex and talk all night about mm -hmm. how Lima applied and the tree of life and magic and all sorts of stuff. But then I look at stuff that I've written and go, God, I hope this stuff never sees the light of day. <laughs> you know? Isn't that interesting that. That's just a natural part of growing up is to, yes. I mean, I, I've dabbled in writing here and there and I used to go, I mean, I've, I've gone through several phases as, as we all do. Right. And I can recognize them without shame now, but I went through my Bukowski phase, you know, in my late twenties sure. where I would drink two glasses of scotch every night and ramble, you know, <laughs> and, and try to try to work through my own feelings of love and relationships and life through the, through the, you know, lens of a bottle. Yep. And I look back at that stuff now, I'm like, oh my God, that is so terrible. 
but it's 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 part of the growing experience, right? We've all done dumb stuff. I I, I very flippantly joke that we've all shed our pants at some point in life. That's just yes. the nature of growing up, and so. Nowadays, we're just so fearful that someone's going to read some some edgelordy shit that we wrote when we were 20, but we all did that. That's all part of our pro- – that's growing up. That's why it's called growing up because Absolutely. You, you start low and then hopefully you get high, right? You get to a better place. And I've often said I at 40, almost 41, when I get to be 52, I want to look back at now and be like, what was he talking about? <laughs> You know? We should be growing. And, and I think that's one of the things that's going on in our community right now. And, and we've seen this as a hot topic come up several times is the idea of age and experience um, and wisdom. And and I, I think that what we look at is we have a lot of younger people now than we ever, I think, ever have had before. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them have some really great insight. In fact, um, as a professor, I teach um, I teach pretty advanced high schoolers, so I teach college college classes to high nice. schoolers, but they're usually pretty advanced. And the and the insight that young people have is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's there, it's uh, it's workable. Um, they they're thinking hard, they're applying it hard. Uh, at least on the whole, you know, you yeah, have a few. But I think we have this generation of young people that are really truly insightful. Does the question then becomes to me? Does that insight translate to enough wisdom and enough experience and enough uh, understanding to turn around and consider yourself an authority. And we have an authority problem in our yeah. communities across the board. Um, and, and I didn't see this 30 years ago, for instance. I mean, when you had when you sat down with somebody, and especially if they were older and they've been doing whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's Sema or Buddhism or whatever, when they've been doing it a while and you know they've been doing it a while, which I think is is kind of the key there, you get to understand that there's some wisdom going on. And mm-hmm. even people that I clashed with as in a personality way had the ability to be seen as these kind of founts of, of wisdom that you could draw from, at least for a little bit until you couldn't do it anymore. Sure, yeah. But there, it didn't matter how conflicting you were with them. There was something to learn. And I think that's the difference of looking at experience and time and age and seeing some of these younger ones trying hard and they are and i think they're succeeding wonderfully mm-hmm. they just need some time to let that kind of percolate uh into really well-formed philosophies really well-formed worldviews um and really well-formed material um itself we there's there's a young lady that's running around at the moment and she prefaces every sentence with well i know and then something else and you think you're factually wrong I don't mean yeah. my opinion is differs from you. I mean, you're factually wrong. And all these people will gather to support them, but they don't ever take the time in loving discernment. I have to stress that. In loving discernment, take them aside and go, hey, <laughs> that statement was, let, let's show you why that statement doesn't, doesn't parse that way. Right. Um, and because we have such this problem with, well, I, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Okay. Well, you know, we get what we get then at that point, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's two things that you really hit on. Number one, um, I think there is just something to do with getting older and life experiences that will take whatever knowledge you might have, whatever academic knowledge you may have, whatever you have read and retained in your insights, and it will evolve them. It doesn't mean that I mean there aren't young people who are smarter than me. I'm sure most of them are, but it but it just means that they're like you said. You used a good term, percolate. Um, 
ripen is another term to use. Like yes. there is, there is just a, a, there is just something. And again, if we're, a, you can read and retain far more information than some folks, but when you apply it over years, it will just ingrain itself and become and reveal itself in ways that you might not have. And that's nothing wrong with it. No. But again, when we have, when we add the money aspect to stuff, who's going to sure. pay for a novice? Yeah. Right. Who's going to pay for I've been actively doing magic for two years. I don't charge for this. I wouldn't ask people to charge for this. I'm not a leader. I'm not a teacher. I'm not, I'm just a, a guy who likes talking with other interesting people. And if someone gleams some information off of it, excellent. Good on them. But for those people who are like tr- actively trying to make a living doing this, I'm sure it's intimidating to say, look, I've only been doing this for a couple of years. I've only been doing this for five years. I've only been doing it for whatever. This is where I'm at. This is for people who are at my level so that we can converse and share and, and have a dialogue versus saying that's the harder route. The other route is, well, I'm an authority. I've been doing it for six months and I've read Wikipedia and it's all I do with my time because I still live at home. And again, I love the passion. I love the passion. I'm not trying to be old man yelling at the clouds. Oh, no. But I also, I, when I, I'm a filmmaker. And when I was young in my filmmaking journey, my mentor, one of my mentors said to me, don't claim to fly 747s when you're barely learning how to fly a Cessna. Right. And he was, he was talking in relation to me calling myself a film producer, which I didn't mm-hmm. do for like the first eight years of my journey, six, seven years of my journey. Because I didn't want to act like I was flying a 747 when I was really at. And I knew a lot of people in the film industry who did. The moment they they produced their friend's short film, they were producers. Had their card, they're passing out at the bar and everything else, right? So it's not like a it's not like specifically an occult issue. It's it's just a thing that people do because it makes them feel special. Better. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned is that it's the constructive and the loving criticism or um, correction. And mm-hmm. I think that on, I think that we have an issue with when someone says something that may be factually wrong or doesn't quite commute, or maybe seems to be skewing the generally accepted idea of a topic, we lash out at them. It's oh, like, yeah. send the dogs, right? Everyone dog piles. And, and that's crazy too, because to me, a community, and, mm-hmm. and I realize that online community is almost an oxymoron, but community itself should have people from all levels or all throughout a, a spectrum of mm-hmm. learning. And those that have been spending a great deal of time need to look back on those that are younger in the path, not necessarily younger in age, but younger in the path and say, hey, how can we help you grow? And how can we help you see whatever this path is? And it doesn't matter if it's the Lima or Wick or witchcraft or um, whatever how do we help you grow? And and when you start spouting something that is wrong and you haven't finished reading everything, which is, that takes a gob amount of years, if, especially in film, if you want to read everything Crowley ever wrote, that could take decades. So yeah. just working on the basics, you know, you've been doing this for a couple of years and you've read a couple of the books that are out there, especially since we have a problem with publishing. But, you know, you've read a couple of books. Let's show you some more from our perspective. Maybe we mm-hmm. have more resources and we can help you grow and help you learn without piling on them and going, you're wrong. You may be factually wrong, but it, 
it, you're at that level that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to work through these things. And we can help lovingly guide you. We don't want to shape you, but at least we can give you this kind of laid out path of where we've been. And that winds all over the place because we're yeah. all different. But here's where we see the, all the multiple perspectives come into play as help rather than a hindrance, I think. Absolutely. And and look, I, I want to be very clear about this for anyone listening. It's a sad reality, and I'm not trying to, to be doom and gloom, but there is a sad reality that people harm themselves from bullying. People have taken yes. their lives from bullying. Everyone's attempt to be correct, to be right, to show someone that they're wrong could and probably will at some point lead to someone harming themselves. And it's not worth it to, to, no. to be right. You know, it's just not. There was a famous uh, Japanese pro wrestler, young lady, who was very, very popular, right? And she went on a reality show. And I guess she did, some, I forget exactly what happened, but she did something that in Japanese culture was frowned upon. Like she hit a guy or something. I forget what it was. Mm-hmm. And she got harassed. And she got harassed. And she got harassed. And she was like 23 years old and she took her life. How fucking sad is that? This woman who had the world handing her a platter and because people online decided to get their jollies off by being assholes, this young woman is no longer with us. This I've seen it happen too many times. So I, I really think very firmly we need to stop and ask ourselves, what are we getting out of this? And and what could be – we got to take responsibility, Right. Your words Absolutely. are your words are a weapon. Treat it like a gun. Don't point it at people. Don't pull the trigger unless you plan to kill. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing that that I when I look at this and I I think okay, where do we get? How do we use all this again? Application. And I think younger. And while it's usually younger in age, that's not necessarily true. But at least younger mm-hmm. in a in a specific path, they provide innovation. They provide new perspectives that those of us that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years can learn from. They have new ways of looking and new ways of doing, whereas we hold kind of the idea of tradition, the way things have always been done. And I don't think that you can progress forward in any path as a whole, as a community, I mean, without both Mm -hmm. innovation and tradition working together. If you have tradition, you get stagnant and you're dead. If all you have is innovation, then all you get is constant heresy. Regard, and I realize that's a bad word to some people, but you get this kind of weird heresy going on that everything is is okay. Well, you know, bullying's not okay. I mean, right. So, but I, I think you have to have both innovation and tradition working together to move forward, and that means that those of us that have been around longer need to listen to those that haven't been or that are age wise even much younger. Listen to them, see where they're going, see what they're headed, see what they have to offer see what we can incorporate and then by in return offer them some of the stability of tradition that we've seen for so long and i think that's really the way the community itself grows and mutates and becomes healthy and we have a garden at that point in time instead of a bunch of little trees out in a in a field you know competing for resources in the ground so absolutely absolutely i i i often see parallels between martial arts and and the occult community right Mm-hmm. I'm a, I, I practice jujitsu amongst some other things, but predominantly jujitsu. And 
I got to jujitsu a little bit later. It was like in my mid thirties when I got into it. So I was older than a lot of the guys there, but like you said, age is not necessarily the, the determining factor. I was a white belt. And one of the things I used to do again, a cringy moment now is when I would do jujitsu tournaments and I would tap the other guy out, I would do the cutthroat sign. Right. Like, what a fucking tool for this white belt guy to be doing that. <laughs> And one of my mates pulled me aside. and was like, look, dude, you don't want to be doing that. Like, it's not cool. Like, I know you're very excited about getting a win in a tournament, but in the end, it's bad sportsmanship. It's not yep. appropriate. Conversely, in jiu-jitsu a few years ago, there was this big revolution of leg locks, you know, leg manipulation, um, something called a heel hook, where you would essentially twist someone's heel inward and if applied long enough and with enough pressure it will break their acl it break blows their knee out right so that was very controversial in jujitsu for a long period of time mm-hmm. people didn't like this this leg lock thing but it was effective and it was a lot of younger jujitsu players who were either brown belts or black belts but younger in age mm-hmm. who were innovating and now everyone learns leg locks like if you got to do if you look at professional jujitsu tournaments everyone's doing leg locks now because the game changed. It grew yeah. and evolved. It went from arm bars and, you know, rear naked chokes to, Hey, let's attack the legs. If you fight, if you watch uh, MMA, same thing, leg kicks, leg kicks a couple of years ago, a few years ago, weren't that popular, but mostly Brazilians younger would come in and they start doing these kicking people's legs, kicking people's calves, kicking people's shins. Well, if you kick someone's leg long enough, it swells and they can't move. And when they can't move, they can't fight. And then all these guys were winning. And so you're dead on. I mean, even if you look at Thelema, Crowley took Golden Dawn and he innovated it in a new way. And Mm -hmm. if not for doing that, he would have just been a Golden Dawn member. Instead, now we have this whole offshoot. You're dead on to this. And I think that if we can learn to do that without being such dicks about everything, then... (laughs) we're going to be able to grow our overall we're going to grow into an actual community beyond a marketplace. I agree. And, and I agree with you. Like I, at my point in my life, I have a path. It's, it's, it's sort of, I'll add and subtract, but it's working for me. And I, and I'm on this path, but how would I learn the, the, the particulars of uh, certain modern techniques or, or approaches of spreading the word even, and we'll get to this in a moment because you said something really funny the other day. <laughs> How will I learn these things if I dismiss anyone young, but I also dismiss anyone old because I'm insecure or whatever it may be. And I'm just robbing myself of knowledge. Just yesterday, I was listening to a live stream and some very good advice came across the live stream, which was eat the fish, throw away the bones or spit out the bones. Right. And I think that we should apply that more frequently Within reason, you don't have to take abuse and you don't have to follow people who are not healthy for you to be observing, but eat the fish, spit out the bones. That's great advice. I'm now going to carry that with me. And I think that we could learn so much from applying that to the way we interact with one another. Oh, I agree completely. Um, I, I think that I think the whole idea is how do you learn? What do you do? Um, and for me, this comes down to what I define as kind of the epistemology of Thelema itself, which is self-discovery. And if we're not questioning, if we're not looking, if we're not taking what we can find, looking through the lens of discernment for ourselves, 
Mm -hmm. um, and then applying what is good for us. You know, Crowley and Paul in the, in the Bible both say, um, you know, take what is, uh, examine all things and, and hold on to that, which is true. And I think that's the way we should approach things, not necessarily um, looking at a person and saying, well, you know, you're too young or you're too old or your idea uh, is, is stuck. Um, I do think we need to have that, that level of discernment to say, okay, well, this is where you're at, but I've got, you know, X, Y, and Z information. Let me add to that mm -hmm. for you because your perspective is obviously limited. And there's nothing wrong with having a limited perspective. Mine is wrong. two at 52. I've still got a long way to grow and a long way to learn. Um, so when we look at that, being able to add to somebody's experience is really part of the whole process in the first place. That's why we're here is to become aggregates, or we are, I shouldn't say become, but we are aggregates of experience. We are here to collect all the experience that we dive into and continually change and develop and grow. And if we're not helping those that don't have our particular depth of knowledge, mm -hmm. then all they're going to do is continue to exist within that tiny sphere of their of their followers, really, and their yeah. their cheerleaders. And they're never going to go anywhere with that, right? And and I and I I suspect that it will then become a fad, right? Right now, in the last, I think I think the. Some of the reports I read was like witchcraft, which is kind of the, the media's catch-off for anything not Christianity. Sure. Witchcraft was on has been on the rise since I think 2008-ish, somewhere in that range. Like the last five or six years or so, it's been there have been people moving away from traditional faiths, mainstream faiths, and moving towards more esoteric studies and spiritual paths and what have mm -hmm. you. But everything cycles, and I think that you're on to something. If we don't add if we don't work together to both innovate and add depth, then what's going to occur is you'll get to a point where there's no much, there's no way further for you to go based mm -hmm. on what you have available to you. And therefore you'll just, and especially because frankly speaking, a lot of that level barely, barely elevates you beyond consumerism anyway. Right. So it's an easy, it's easy to distribute, absorb back into the spectacle of society and just be another person on the street going to the movies and the bars and the whatever else. And, you know, in the next five or six years, we could see that downturn where everyone, oh, we had our moment, we shocked our parents, we made some Patreon money, and now we've moved on back to right. whatever. And that would be a real shame because I do believe that these practices allow us to feel, to, to, garner real sovereignty over our lives in a way that is not presented, certainly uh, in the way that mainstream religion is presented, but also just as society presents itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think part of where we get stuck um, is in that, that I, I really hate the word ego, but I'm going to use it. Um, we stuck with our ego um, mm -hmm. and we get stuck with who we are alone. And, and especially within Thelema, there's this kind of underlying misperception that continues to filter out every once in a while, uh, more so than not, but that we're an island. And mm. Thelema doesn't teach that every man is an island. It teaches that every man and every woman is a star. And a star is part of a solar system or part of a galaxy or part of a universe. You are mm -hmm. not alone. And so you have your own orbit, certainly, but you are part of this vast ecosphere of other stars of other people and you have to relate to them somehow the gravity pull of other people it may be stronger or less you know strong um 
and and we have to deal with that. And I think that's a big misperception is we're an island. We're yeah. alone. And I've got to do my own thing. And if anybody says otherwise, then they're interfering with my will. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, certainly bullying somebody out of a perspective is, is you know, uh, pushing their will or whatever. But for the most part, Crowley even talks about this, that our connection to other people is one of the deepest, most misunderstood doctrines of Thelema is how we're all connected. Um, and as a community, as a, as a, as a universe. So well, and if you look at it from a celestial standpoint, if you look at literal stars, their orbit is only possible due to gravitational pulls. Absolutely. Stars, stars ability to travel their own trajectory is only possible due to its relation to other stars and suns and nebulas and black holes and everything else. Otherwise, Things would just move at random and probably crash into each other and burn, and then we'd have yes. destruction. So uh, that's the order, right? That's the order in life, and that is the order in our relation to one another. And absolutely, I, I frankly always believe that we are part of the same source of life, and so we're intrinsically interconnected, whether we like it or not. So we should stop pretending that we're s- approaching it from the self-centered perspective of do what they will means I'll do whatever the fuck I want and don't even tell me that I'm wrong because you're impeding my will. Your will is not being impeded. If you, if you turn your, if you click the tab, the little X where your Twitter is, if you click that and it goes away, no one's stopping you from doing a damn thing. Do whatever you want. It's that easy. Well, and I think we, I think, as a whole, we've had it beaten to our head from Crowley forward that do it that will does not mean do what you want. Um, the problem that I see um, over, and, and I can only use my, I keep saying 30 years of experience, but that's all I've got is 30 years of experience um, to, to ride on. What I've seen mm-hmm. throughout this is we talk about how do it that will is not do what you want. But then when somebody approaches us or uh, we continue to, to evolve into another state uh, for, through learning, we keep acting as if do it thou wilt is do what you want. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me that my perspective is wrong. Um, it doesn't matter that you've got, you know, uh, five different resources that tell me I'm wrong, you know, from the mouth of the beast himself. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. I'm right. And we have that kind of uh, approach that says I'm going to do whatever I want because it's my will. Yeah. And we misunderstand the thou and we misunderstand the wilt in there. Um, and suddenly both of those become me, me, me. Yeah. And it's all about the, the, the kind of this outer layer that we walk around with. And well, I think that's a shame because we can talk the talk. Absolutely. But when it comes down to walking the walk, I, I admit sometimes I get my, the hair on the back of my head up and I'm like, I want to fight now. Cause you can't tell me, Oh, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> maybe yeah. I'm not, maybe I'm not thinking about this through. Let me, let me think. So well, absolutely. It goes right back to what we talked about at the beginning. It's the practical application of one's spiritual belief and practice. Yes. Yes. I struggle with this all the time. This idea of will. What is my will? I don't know what my will is. I've had people tell me like, oh, your will is filmmaking or your will is this. And maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't feel concretely that I know it yet. But I think to myself, like, what would that mean if I did? If I knew without a shadow of a doubt what my will was, what would that mean? And how would that impact my life? How would that impact my relationships? How would that impact my what where I live, my job? Like those are heady things to think about. But in yes. but in theory, 
once you discover this and once you feel that that orbit, that pull, that gravitational pull towards your path, these are things to consider. And if you're not considering them and trying to figure out how that works in life, then all you're left with is, oh, this is my opinion. This is what I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it anyway. Yep. And, yep. You know. Well, and see, you could figure out your will and it still involve filmmaking. To me, it's not your career. But right. your career could be an exemplar to what your will is. It's a manifestation of that will. And you're, you're pursuing that. I don't think we necessarily have to know it to be on the right path. We kind mm. of inherently or uh, innately head that direction. It just helps to know what it is because then we can focus. And if, if it comes out that uh, uh, presentation or um, elucidation is your particular will, your filmmaking uh, and everything else that you do, the photography I know that you do, um, could be an example in being used in that manner to spread whatever that uh, purpose is. Because I don't right. think our purpose is to be isolated. I think our when we find our will, it is so that we utilize it outside of ourselves. It is that drive. It is that path, that, that motion that we're going. And we're going to affect everybody around us. How we do that can be focused or it can be scattered. And I think right. knowing that true will or knowing that will allows us to be focused in what we're doing and how we affect others rather than being kind of just random and chaotically uh, hit or miss, you know, in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that that, see, th that's the perspective that to me comes with experience and not just religious experience, not just like, not just like, you know, 30 years of, of philemic study and belonging to an order, but that's just life experience. Yes, right? absolutely. That's, that's just like, I've seen many suns and many moons and made many mistakes. And in that path, this is what I've come to understand. And I feel like, again, Twitter is not the best representation of the whole, but it is the representation that's the loudest. Right. If you were interested in Thelema, if someone's tuning in, if never heard about Thelema before, and they get on Twitter and they see most of what oh, is God. available. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. it's, it's tough. It's tough to understand what any of this really means. And certainly it doesn't feel like when you look at the, the talking heads, the cult of personalities, the, the leaders in this online sphere, like that their lives represent something that is fruitful. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I think that comes back to that idea of will, when you're doing your will, um, so we're told, um, uh, we're, we're on this path and nothing can stop us. And I'm not sure that that's a healthy way to look at will. Mm -hmm. Um, even if you know your true will, you've had this experience of discovery or what Crowley, um, absurdly, I, I have to stress that word absurdly called the knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel. Um, it, once you've had that experience of understanding what your true will is, I don't think that you're necessarily always going to be ex, uh, exemplifying that. You can, mm -hmm. you can, you know, get sidetracked. You always need have that, that same basic um, flow still, I think. And it's still narrowed down. As I said before, you're a little more focused, but you can get sidetracked. Life happens. Mm -hmm. And the idea that suddenly we've had this experience and we know our true will and we're suddenly a saint or whatever you want to call it, you know, we're a super magician or whatever. I think that's the mistake that we have in this myth that we've built up. Uh, and especially in Thelemic communities where 
uh, I never do anything wrong anymore. The world just exists and happens um, mm-hmm. around me and I'm doing the perfect thing with my true will. And, you know, sometimes the car comes out of nowhere and runs the red light and it hits you. Now what? Was that part of your will? You, you know, right. th- that's a random accident. How you respond to that, how you deal with that is part of, um, I think, will. Um, and your particular will is going to respond to the randomness in a certain way. But we can't affect that. Sometimes we get knocked off and we're like, man, this month sucked money wise. And I've got a you know power bill that's due. And how am I going to figure that out? You know? Uh, I think that happens to to everybody. Um, so we just don't snap our fingers and bam, you know, the world changes for us. Well, look, especially if you're a Thelemite, because look at Crowley, it would be hard (laughs) to look at his life and not notice that there's some, there's some valleys there. Yep. You know, there's, there's some down, there's some times when life, but it does the famous phrase, like sometimes you're the wiper, sometimes you're the fly. Yep. The life was the wiper a lot with that guy. Yeah. And and I think that's a perfect example. And and we look for examples that I think we can point out um, for why things work and why things don't. Crowley is a perfect example of things that worked really, really well. Here's a path that worked, but there are stumbling blocks. There are issues in the universe that hit us out of the out of the blue. There are times that we get a little too deep into ourselves and a little selfish and a little heady. And we fall off and have to jump back on again. You know, we know where we're going. We know how we're supposed to do it. But bam, that electric bill really knocked me off, you know, because I wasn't ready mm-hmm. for it, even though I should have been, you know. Yeah. But uh, I think that's that's a great example. Crowley had these really great mountaintop experiences, and then he hit the valley. And sometimes he didn't hit them just right, and they, they bottomed out for him. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from that. Yeah, it's such a weird relationship. I feel like that the magic community as a as a whole looks at Crowley and, and interacts with Crowley because on beyond just the Lemites, like everyone references Crowley. Uh, right. I've, I've I've joked that he's sort of the Che Guevara of the magic community. You know, <laughs> he he's both the entry point and also not quite the holy uh, infallible figure that people make him out to be when they're first getting into something. For me, Absolutely. when I first got into leftist politics, it was like Che Guevara, and then. You read about him and he's kind of a shitbag, you know, but he's on every shirt and he's uh-huh. like, he's on the Rage Against the Machine album and, and everything else, right? He's the sort of figurehead. And I think in some regard, Crowley is quite like that as well. Yes. He's problematic if that's, I hate that term, but it's a term that people understand. So he's, he's a fallible person like we all are, um, but he's also the guy on the mugs and the t-shirts and the earrings and the whatever else. He's like, he's you know, Tony the tiger for magic, right? He's everywhere. Right. And, and people's relationship with his life and who he is, be it this, I, I always see these like fights like, Oh, you hero worship Crowley. Oh, we're going to, we're going to move beyond Crowley. We're going to, it was like, dude, this guy's been dead for a long time. Like take the lessons and move on with your life. Like you don't need to be part of the Crowley fan club right? to practice the Lima or any other magic or to get information or knowledge from him. But we have a really weird, unhealthy hero worship of who he is, and everyone's got a different opinion on it. And I feel like way too often that impacts more than the than the actual teachings do. I agree. And I've said it in the past that I think we, we're not quite there, but we need to get to a point where Crowley is the myth. Mm-hmm. Um, Crowley turns out and, – and, People scream if I say this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. He needs to be he needs to be Jesus. 
in the sense of we don't know if he's real or not. We don't. We have a lot of evidence that says, okay, there's there's some really good textual evidence that this is a real person, but we have all this myth that's built around him. And especially in our modern society, we have, you know, Republican Jesus and we have mm-hmm. leftist Jesus and we have white Jesus and we have Middle Eastern Jesus. But we got to get to a point to where it's no longer about the person. The myth probably needs to kind of have its own little egg so that the Lima can spread. Uh, actually, let's talk about it as a seed. He needs to be that seed that we no longer really think about. We look at the Lima as, as a bigger picture, as a bigger garden out of that seed. And I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we're close, but um, I think the the uh, Thelemites and, and God bless them, so to speak. But the Thelemites from the '60s and '70s came in. They saw that the OTO was dying, therefore Thelema is dying, and they they reconstituted the the OTO, which I think was a great thing. Um, and and but those Moors from the '60s and '70s crept in, and we had uh, a lot of people that went, "Oh, it's all about me." And we see mm-hmm. that in some of the really right-wing politics of some people that, you know, they're now dead, but and still around as well. But we kind of see that. It's all about me. It's me, me, me. Stay away. You know, every man's an island. And I, and I blame the 60s and 70s for that, you know. And, and I don't think that's really what Thelema is trying to say, um, personally. Mm-hmm. But um, that kind of fed into, and then we had these weird OTO fights in the 90s and uh, between, you know, different competing groups and stuff like that. And everybody wanted their own OTO group. And I think now things are settled down. Uh, I, I think we're far more, uh, grounded to where we can start seeing that garden grow, um, and get away from the personality cults, um, that have grown up around Crowley himself, um, so that we can start seeing Thelema applied. And, and there we come back to my favorite topic of how do we apply but I think we're in a, a good position now, despite some some hiccups here and there, and despite this whole uh, commercialization that we keep saying. Mm-hmm. I think we're on the road to finally being able to expand and see application in real life that helps everybody. Yeah, I, it's funny that you mentioned Jesus, because I think if you look at the trajectory, it parallels Christianity pretty accurately. You had the infighting of the churches. Every church broke up. You have Church of Christ. You have uh, Baptists. You have Methodists. You have whatever. Then you kind of, I think maybe we're in the what would Jesus do bumper sticker phase of, yes. of you know, where it's like now it's a, it's a, it's a thing to buy, to show to the world, to, to virtue. Again, this is a term that gets misused often, but to virtue signal, to show your virtue yes. as it relates to Crowley and Thelema and what have you. And I'm guilty of it too. I think all young practitioners do because it's attractive and because it's cool. And it's kind of, I mean, look, you have a hoodie on that has a pentagram that has love, you know, it's dope. I like it. It's awesome. But it just can't be the only thing. Right. And I think that's where we're still in infancy a little bit, where we've kind of like the big orders fought back in before my time. And now it's kind of moved into like a grassroots type scenario. I think most I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say this, but it seems like most folks are mostly, you know, solo practitioners. Maybe they follow a, a particular person on a Patreon or what have you as like their, as the sort of the path, but, the, but, but very few seem to be as part of orders and like the way that we would traditionally think of it. But everyone's still kind of going out to get their WWCD bumper sticker <laughs> and stick it on their Twitter profile and let the world know that this, that's who they are. And, 
And I think you're right. Like we need to move beyond all that because just like with Jesus, when I was growing up, I'm sure you heard this term too. I love Jesus, but I hate his followers. Right. Right. I think there's a little bit of that at play right now where we need to move beyond this and we need to just think, what were the teachings? What was imparted? What was the impact? How does this apply to our lives? And then apply it. And, and if it's not working, if your life is still a mess, maybe analyze why that is, what's right. not working. What is not, apl- maybe are you earnestly applying this? Are you believing this because it's trendy and you think it's going to get the young kids in because it's far cooler than saying, Oh, I'm praying to Michael today, you know, Archangel Michael, <laughs> that's not as cool, but I, 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 I invoke Samael and that's way edgier and cooler for the punk rock crowd. Sure. You know? get beyond a little bit of that and start saying to ourselves, this is designed to release us from the shackles of this world, to give us freedom to be who we are naturally meant to be. And that's a serious endeavor. I agree with you. And I, and I think that your, your analogy here is perfect uh, to me, at least, especially having grown up in the seventies, the eighties and early nineties for my formative years. Um, and seeing a lot of that and mm-hmm. seeing a lot of this weird kind of, well, you know, this is bad and what would Jesus do and all that stuff. And I think we really are in that phase, like you said, of what would Crowley do and who cares? Right. He, like, did, frankly, he, should, he would not care, right? Probably, yeah, you, you know, he wouldn't care. And I think that's why I say we've got to get him into the aspect of a myth um, to where it, we're no longer looking at Crowley as um, uh, what is it, nitpicking him. I guess is where I'm headed. We, instead of nitpicking, what would Crowley do? Now we're looking at a myth that, you know, this kind of exemplar of Thelema that started it, and we can kind of ignore him. And we can't get rid of him, but we kind of push him to the side. You know, Christians do this. You know, it's it's what does the Christian life do? Well, we've kind of pushed Jesus aside so we can feed the, the poor because Jesus would approve, but, you know, it's up there. And I think we need to get to that point to where we can do what we need to do as a community do what we need to do as, as practitioners individually. Uh, and, and Crowley isn't the, the boogeyman. He isn't right. the, or conversely, he's not the saint, you know, that we're doing. We're doing it because he set an example of go do. And the book of the law says that. Um, even if I happen to be one of those um, uh, irrational or not believers in the, the Cairo story, um, that here we have this, this revelation, the revelation itself beyond Crowley, Revelation itself tells us to go out and give the, the law to everyone we meet and meet, uh, meet and greet. And I think that's important um, that we do that. How do we do that um, is through our life and through our example. And I think Crowley provided that example of, yes, there's great highs. Yes, there's days that just suck. Um, and, and sometimes we just die, you know, muttering. And, right. But it's the example through life that we need to give that Thelema frees us from all this, this extraneous stuff that comes along with culture and society. And it feels very much like this isn't something that requires its own offshoot. This feels in, you know, threaded through Thelema always. Yes. It's, 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 it's for, you know, this is, it's a very American thing and I don't know if it happens elsewhere around the world, but it's certainly an American thing where we love our royalty. We love our JFK. We love our Kardashians. We love our, I don't know, whoever's popular, uh, Pete Davidson and, and Machine Gun Kelly and whatever other pop stars are around. We And we apply that to our 
spiritual leaders, our gurus, for example. And we did that to Crowley. But I, uh, to me, as I've read it, it doesn't seem like it's it's a new revelation. This is just what was always supposed to be. And and we kind of mixed it up in a, in a kind of a weird way. And now we're, we need to sort of untangle ourselves from that fishing net of celebrity. Yes. We, we thrust upon him. And maybe he would have been fine with it. Probably would have. But but that doesn't mean that that's really the takeaway that, that no. people who believe, whether you're a Thelemite or you just believe philosophically that, you know, he's he's had some very wise things to say. Sure. And the other thing is also like when I look at, I want to say history, but maybe mythology or whatever, that sort of intersection. If you look at prophets, they almost were never perfect people. Never. Mm-mm. You know, they were always flawed individuals. They were always people who were oftentimes down on their luck or struggling, and they were given a higher purpose in spite and maybe because of their flaws. And oh, I agree. I totally agree. And that's more of a Christian thing, it seems like. So I think maybe that's why people don't want to make that connection. But the argument about Crowley and is he good and should we leave him and blah, 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 blah. It's like he's if, if you believe he is the prophet or a prophet, then he's in good company because that's how most of them have been. Drunkards, you know, womanizers, edgelords. That's yeah. uh, if you believe that God picks prophets to send his message for the new audience, the new generations, right in line. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's God's type. He loves them. <laughs> I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. I, I think that moving forward is not about necessarily leaving Crowley behind, but keeping him in, in the perspective mm-hmm. um, and the peripheral perspective for where we're moving toward. Um, and I think we're starting to see um, some really good thought come out of people, some really good uh, materials come out of people that are starting to get there. Um, so to what, uh, when I say there, getting to the point of um, really reaching beyond ourselves. And uh, I think that's exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. Now, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, innovation. And mm-hmm. you could certainly look at what I'm about to say as innovation in terms of marketing or spreading the word or evangelizing. The memification of Philema. I'm really curious <laughs> on your thoughts on that because – Part, I think, of what has made this boom in esoteric practice are memes. And Crowley memes are the best memes. I think everyone can admit that. Like He just lends himself well to, you know, to good humor. But uh, is, what's our takeaway from, especially for you who's, who's old school, been around a while, and you've sort of seen this progression towards whatever it was in the 90s, probably very insulated and, and small, to this sort of mass production of pop art as it relates to this thing that you believe in on a spiritual level and especially as it relates to a prophet. I mean, I can't think of any, maybe Jesus, maybe, I mean, I got a, I got a Jesus meme last night, so maybe <laughs> Jesus, but like you don't see Muhammad memes. No. You know, you don't see a lot of Joseph Smith memes. No. You don't, you know, you don't, maybe, maybe there's some Buddha memes, but like, you don't say like Crowley more than anyone seems like he's, ripe for for memification and the lima has grown under that for better or for worse i'd be really curious to see what your thoughts are on it um you you cornered me so (laughs) (laughs) um i'm going to admit up front that i'm 
I've been around since the beginning of the internet. I've seen the, the whole evolution of it. I remember even before we had the World Wide Web and things like that. And um, I don't think that gives me any voice of authority or anything like that. But my observation has been that every time we start seeing this kind of pop memification of anything, mm-hmm. um, it's not taken seriously. Um, there is a slight to it. Um, and it only lasts for a short period of time, generally. I mean, the Christians did it in the in the 90s. Uh, they were kind of, the, I think, the first ones to start doing that. Um, they weren't cute little pictures. They were whole websites. But there was this, we can do uh, the shortcut. We can get mm-hmm. information to you in a short amount of space, a small thing. And I think that's what we've done um, to ourselves. And I'm not going to name names. I'm not throwing darts at anybody in the wall. But I think we've spent the last decade, decade and a half, really looking at these memes as, oh, well, those are information. Well, they're out of context, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, they create confusion. For, and my the famous one that comes across that is, I probably irks me more than anything, is the one about cutting your own way through the jungle. Um, and the problem with that is it's people are like, well, Thelema means I can do whatever I want. I got to do my own thing. And if I'm on the same path as you, that's bad. You know, right. I've got to cut my way through the jungle and they never go back to the original context, which has nothing to do with Lima in the first place. Um, it, it's zip about the Lima. And so I think when we see these memes like that, um, we're not including the context. We're not providing context. We're adding to somebody's information and knowledge in a very meticulously wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Lima has not reached a point of uh, shortcuts. I don't think we have the ability to have, um, uh, these kind of, I think it takes more study than we don't have a cliff notes. That's what I'm headed for. We don't have a cliff notes and I don't think we're ready for the cliff notes. Um, yet everybody acts, I say everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, many act as if they've got the cliff notes that they've already written the cliff notes. And half the time you look at it and go, wow, (laughs) you missed that line in the commentary and the commentary is online. The commentaries are some of the most valuable mm-hmm. um, gems of Crowley's thoughts. Um, so I think we've, we've reached that point where hopefully it's starting to die down as we see more and more people come across uh, with more information and in-depth books and stuff like that. But I, I really think that we've hamstrung ourselves for the last decade, decade and a half, decade and a half over these memes um, yeah. because they are, they, so much of it's out of context. So much of it leads you in one direction. And when you go read it in context, you're like, oh, wow. That was something way over here, not not you know where I thought it was, and so uh, I think that's the problem we have. Uh, yeah, it, I think it's, I, it's trying to provide a shortcut that's not there. Well, and also I think it, it, it you know memes were designed to be funny, right? And or they yes. were meant to be in jokes. Yes, like like you could see a meme, let's say a Crowley meme of whatever Crowley twerking. Right. Because there's some sort of weird AI thing. <laughs> and you probably find it funny. Absolutely. But if, but you're, if you're a new person who's just getting into this and this is your exposure and this is not just the Lima, it's anything. Sure. These are your exposures, these short bites, way out of context, sort of mockery. Oftentimes it could be very it could feel like just a pop fad. It's like I hate to be this guy, but it's like the, the Unknown Pleasures album cover T-shirt being sold at H&M or wherever pop store sold at people buy it and they wear it and there's no understanding of what joy division is or ian curtis or his lyrics or the music or any of that it's all robbed of it because it just becomes a quick shareable thing 
that you get a chuckle on and then you move on. And then if from that you do dive in to Thelema and, and Crowley's writing, I've I've tried and he is not the easiest read no. in the world. His stuff is like, I mean, it really does take some sitting down and, and doing, you know, you got your, your book here and your laptop here. So you can start looking words up and, and um, you know, you can pick up, like I just was reading, like read a few months ago, the book of Thoth. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Like I have to, you know, sometimes, and I'm a, I, you know, I fancy myself a good reader, but there are times when you've got to go back and reread. And then he goes on tangents constantly and yes, you know, he digresses and it's just like, whoa, it's, it's not, it, it could not be summed up in a short bite in no. any fashion. And and I'm usually amused by those that are like, well, this is an advanced Thelema video or advanced Thelema topic or advanced Thelema uh, book. And you're like, um, you haven't scratched the surface of Crowley yet. Crowley makes all our advanced books still look like beginners. I mm-hmm. There is not a day. There is not a day, I swear to God, there's not a day that I don't open up a Crowley book and learn something new that I, I'm like, I've read them all cover mm-hmm. to cover multiple times, but there's not a single day that I don't open up one of his books and go, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? You know, yeah. I, I'm constantly learning new depths of his work that blow me away. And I'm like, I've been reading the same book for 20 years, 25 years, and I'm just now getting that sentence in my head for some reason. And it's like, boom. Total, I won't say total, I was gonna say total enlightenment, that's not true. There's this huge illumination, the light bulb goes off, and you're like, Oh my god, that that makes so much sense. And I think well, lots of us are that way, yeah. Well, because the book has been the same for 25 years, but the reader has not exactly, exactly. And you, you may have read over that line physically or mentally, you know, a thousand times, but you're now in a position where that means something yep. to you in a way that it, w- it just could not have. 25 years prior. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that when we come back to the conversation of innovation, tradition, age, and, and uh, wisdom and things like that, I think that's really the key is you're, you're young and inexperienced. Let's put it that way. It doesn't necessarily have to be age, but young and experienced. And that's a great where, place to start. And I think that you're, uh, uh, or that person is on the right track, but there's so much more that will come uh, available to you through experience, through continuing to dive, through continuing study. Um, we have, our community especially has a huge deficit in actual exegesis processes. So, you know, people read something and they throw it out and they don't realize how to do that, that intellectual mm-hmm. study uh, to get even more out. But I think that uh, the more that people grow, the more people learn, we're going to see some amazing people, some amazing minds come out of these. Um, in this, in this particular case, in these young people, I think that mm-hmm. when we see them in another 10, 20 years, they're going to be just powerhouses of, of information and wisdom. Um, I just think right now they need a little bit of, uh, culturing, a little bit of, yeah. um, uh, marinating, help. if you will. Marinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it, I think 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to have this whole generation of just powerhouses, especially in Thelema, um, that that's amazing. Um, as much as I cringe at some of them now, I, I just <laughs> see I see those seeds of, oh, my God, when you get to be my age, you're just going to be like bowling people over. I see it. 
So right. I'm excited to see that younger generation while I'm cringing at some of the things they're doing at the same time. So, but, but you would have cringed at the stuff you did at that time. Oh, that I age, do. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I do. I do. I look back and there's things that I look of, of trying, like I have a paper somewhere that I, I wrote for my dad trying to convince him that Paul was a Gnostic and <laughs> it's so over the top and it's so completely factually incorrect in places. And it's so completely just, it's totally cringe. I hope no one ever, ever finds it or sees it. Um, I should probably burn every copy I have, but um, I, I, I leave it around to remind myself of where I've been and, right. and where I've come from. And what I was attempting to do at that time was trying to um, expand my worldview, my experience, so that I could try to get my dad specifically, um, who was my hero for most of my life, trying to get him to understand my perspective of where I was in life. I wanted that understanding from him. And I failed, but it was still something that was an experience that moved me forward in life to continue to be very uh, pro-promulgation, trying to work out how to get Thelema into the world itself. Right. Well, and honestly, even even that act was an act of maturity that might not have been available a couple of years prior because you, you mentioned earlier, much of what the draw is to some of these things, Thelema at the top of this list, is this rebellious attitude. I was raised Christian. I'm going to go worship the beast. Take that mom and dad. <laughs> and at a certain point you start, as we get older, we start to realize how amazing our parents are in not all instances, but certainly mm-hmm. in my interest and in, in, it seems like yours as well. And we start to value their opinion. And we, and more importantly, we want them to value ours. Whereas for many years of our adolescence, we're content to just horrify them. I mean, there was a period of time when my mom would throw holy water on me whenever I left the house because I was insistent on wearing all black, which as you can tell, I still do. She just, she just got used to it. But, but you know, whereas when I was 19, 20, I was just con- content to say, Hey mom, I know you found this uh, cover of the communist manifesto, but like, let me rebel against you. Hey mom, I'm going to have a devil lock and eyeliner and paint my nails black. Hey mom, whatever. At a certain point, I, I I did there there is that part of the maturity where you're like I need you to understand me as a as a man as a as an adult because mm-hmm. you're an adult and I'm an adult and I value you and because I value you I want you to value me even that moment as as cringy as you might look at the reading now with now twenty more years or twenty five more years of experience that you could see I mean from my perspective it seems like that was a turning point in yes. your maturation. And again, this just comes with the time that goes with it. And my only fear, because I I can be pessimistic. I think everyone can tell that if you see me online. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine about the egregore of Lilith Mm -hmm. and how there seems to be two versions of Lilith that sort of exist on the internet. There's the traditional Lilith that we think of as in, in Jewish tradition and Babylonian tradition. And then there's Girl Boss Lilith that seemed to have come around sometime maybe in the 70s where Lilith became a stand-in for a certain type of like activism. Right. And and she became the nurturer, she became the girl power, she became something different than the mythology had traditionally presented her as. I don't think this, I'm not making a moral judgment one way or another, but it does feel like that has changed. And so there is a, we were talking about the, the egregore of the modern Lilith is completely different than the egregore of the traditional Lilith. Right. And I wonder if, and I'd be curious on your perspective on 
what the thelemic egregore looks like currently. And if people are drawing from it haphazardly, let's say, what that impact could be. Um, that's a great question. I think, um, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have an answer entirely, but I think looking at where we're at as a whole, Mm -hmm. um, is right around the first or second century church. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's still this kind of formation of ideas. We're kind of seeing some, uh, the beginnings of some solidification of, of unity of ideas across the board. Um, but we're not quite there yet. Um, now, I hope we never see a, like a Council of Nisi or anything like that. That's, that's not what I really want. Um, I think we've already seen the rise of a magisterium, which is uh, could be helpful in some ways and, and detriment in others. But for the most part, I think we're seeing this kind of cohesion begin to build around firm doctrines of how Thelema works. There's a, there's a true will. There is a process for that. There's a path for that, um, what that means and how do we express it. I think we're starting to see some cohesion there, but I don't think we're to a point that we have a solid rock mm-hmm. and that we're going to build this edifice on and that everybody's going to go, oh, hey, there's the Lima. Um, I don't think we're ever going to have that. But right. at some point in time, having this kind of cohesion, um, very similar to the way the Catholics and the, the Protestants and some of the independents all have the same kind of underlying cohesion and they build on top of it. I think, right. we're, like I said, I think we're starting to see that cohesion so that people can then build very stable relationships and communities in their differences while still being able to commune in their similarities. Um, and and that's, what I, I, that's what I think is starting to happen and what I hope continues to progress. Yeah, that makes sense. My, my, it reminds me, um, you know, I mentioned that I started Catholic and then for a few years I went to Church of Christ. And the reason that that occurred was because my mom, Catholic, had a, a friend, his name was Cliff, who was her mailman. Mm-hmm. At her, my mom used to own a dessert shop growing up, a little small cheesecake place, and he was her mailman and they formed a friendship. And actually, I think that's how she met my stepdad is through Cliff. And Cliff was Church of Christ. My mom was Catholic and they would you know, he'd have a coffee if he had time and or a cheesecake and they would sit and talk just like we we're doing and what we've talked about. And they would banter back and forth about the true Christianity in a lighthearted, friendly way. Right. They would have, you know, Cliff had his point of view. Sandra had her point of view and they would they would have fun debates or quips mm-hmm. at each other, or what have you. But it was all in good faith and it was all done lightheartedly. And um, and there was no they could commune even in their differences. I mean, the church of Christ and Catholicism brought us far apart within the world <laughs> of Christianity as you can get. Absolutely. And, and yet at the end, they, they both believed in Christ. They both believed in the resurrection. They both believed in uh, a singular God and, and the differences were just kind of more for bullshit and then, than actual conflict, sure. which of course is not the case for everyone. But I do think that that's, that is a better Directions to start moving into. When my best friend and I developed what we called Talk the Lima uh, Conversations Over Coffee, is actually the book that we designed for that. It was mm-hmm. very much about sitting down with a group of people, taking a topic, for instance, and discussing it within the framework of uh, the Lima, the Holy Books, the Book of the Law, something like that. But inside that particular process was the idea that each person had a, I hate the word space, safe space, but they had a safe space 
to express their opinion, to express their views so that others could learn from that perspective, not to try to convince people that your perspective is right, but to offer a different view so that people could learn from that view and grow together with separate opinions. And sometimes there we would sit down and I would go, you know, that opinion makes so much sense in the way you're presenting it. I've realized that my construction of this idea, I need to, I need to work on it. I need to, mm-hmm. to figure it out or change it or modify it because what you've said really works. There's so much wisdom in that, um, that I haven't considered. Um, and ultimately I might reject it if with some more study or I might incorporate it and go, Hey, that really worked, but there was no antagonism. My way right. is the right way. My way is, is, you know, it, my way or the highway. It was all about communion rather than isolation. Right. And I, I, I feel like that is a, that is something that, that needs to be fostered more and more of, and I don't know the right platform for it because, because frankly speaking, I think the best platform for it is a, a solid piece of wood with four legs and two chairs and interpersonal connection. It's once you start getting into public forums, once you start getting into the marketplace, it feels so hard to imagine that developing in, in a healthy manner. But I do think it's important because the other thing is sometimes I'll have an opinion and you'll have your opinion and maybe they'll be in conflict. And then in the process of a, a proper professional conversation, I'll realize I don't have a good explanation for my belief. And, and just realizing that can sometimes, it doesn't mean your belief is going to change, but it can highlight what, what, what uh, deficiencies it may have. Right. And, or it and, could lead you to, to go somewhere and, and find a way to defend your opinion better because you exactly. realized I'm, I'm sitting here on sand. I need a good solid foundation because I really believe this. And while that makes sense, I need to understand how to defend my position. We call that, um, in an in group, we call that, um, uh, now I've forgotten the term. It just totally went out of my head. Um, when we are talking about an out group, we we're talking about apologetics and mm-hmm. we're defending the faith to people outside. Um, polemics, sorry. When we talk about polemics, we're talking about on the inside. So being able to defend ourselves, being able to have a polemic, and that doesn't mean a bad thing. That just means being mm-hmm. able to solidly defend our position to others. That's important. And if we're having a discussion, we find out I've just spouted something that I can't really back up very well. It's not a matter of changing that perspective. It's a matter of supporting it with right. the evidence, with the, the holy books, whatever you're going to use. And if it you can't, figuring out why and changing yourself. I don't right. think that's a problem. I think that's a healthy way of approaching life itself. Absolutely. I think if you look at great lead, what we call great leaders in life, most of the time they have surrounded themselves with people who have conflicting opinions because that is how we strengthen our opinions and our resolve. You know, uh, iron sharpens iron. And so... I think that if if we can find a healthy place to foster these, then we'll we'll strengthen the whole. Uh, I don't know where that is. I don't no. know. I, I don't think it's online. I can I can say that maybe discords, maybe, but I haven't really ventured too deeply into them. Yeah. And it's just still feels like the anonymity, and it's just not the proper. There's just something different when even in this transaction where it's like well, you and I can see each other. Mm-hmm via the camera. I can see your body movement. I can, you can see when I, when I turn away to, to get my words in order before I speak them sometimes more successfully than others, but, <laughs> but, but that already is a, is a deeper connection than any conversation we could have had online, even if it was, yes. you know, direct message. 
And so uh, it it feels like again, what is whatever the internet is the internet. It's going to be there. But I think if if we're taking this seriously and it's important to us to strengthen our 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 ideals and our and and found find that foundation, it does feel like perhaps the best movement in fostering a community is to do it offline. It's to have a community. It's to have a community. Yeah. It's to go find, you know, when I was growing up, I remember this very distinctly. I had a friend, we, this guy, Bobby, uh, who later went to go date my uh, ex-girlfriend, which was conflict then, because that's real life. You know, con- these conflicts are not going to go away by what we're suggesting, but yeah. we met Bobby because he had, uh, he'd made his own misfit armbands. So he'd gotten some sweatbands and he bought the the patch and he sewed it on there and he was wearing them like Doyle from the misfits. And we liked the Misfits and we saw this guy at the mall wearing all black and we were wearing all black and he had Misfit armbands and we liked the Misfits and decade long friendships were formed in that moment because we found like-minded folks. We hung out at Denny's uh, when, when I was in Abilene and I would come down, my, my, my friend Christopher and one of my friends, Charlie, who lived on opposite ends of Corpus Christi. One left in Flower Bluff, one lived in Cal Island. They're like pretty far away. And I lived in Corpus Christi proper, so I lived in the middle. And near me was a Denny's that stayed open all night. And that was the beginning of many of these friendships that deepened and developed and blossomed, right? Because what started as a group of three became a group of five, became a group of six. And then we had to move to the double tables because we had 10 people and none of us had money. So we're just eating bottomless French fries and bottomless (laughs) coffee all night. Our, our server, Millie, was so sweet. She indulged these rough scallions, you know, staying there all night. But it built something real. And, and from that, endless friendships were formed. People whom I've been friends with for 25 years were formed at this origin place. And it really started because you found someone that had a like-minded ideal as you. You hung out with them. You shared. You communed. You developed a friendship. You developed a love. And it endured and there's drama and there's fighting. And I've had friends whom I've not talked to for like 10 years because of some stupid argument about hardcore bands. And then 10 years passes and we realize it's really stupid and we become friends again. And then Mm -hmm. we're right back as if not a day passed by. I don't know that any of that can be formed online. Maybe, maybe, but I do think that maybe the step forward is let's use online as maybe a supplement. Yes. but not the meal. Yes. And let's let's form people in our in our real life, in our physical communities and neighborhoods. Let's create our, you know, community TM that way so that we form a strong foundation that then will hopefully make what we share online a little bit more mature and palatable. I agree. I agree. Um you talk about people getting into community and becoming uh connected. I've often said and I and I have this myself, but I've often said that I believe uh, occultists, pagans, magicians, whatever you want to call them in there, um, each person should have two mentors. You should have a mentor that is as close to your own beliefs as possible that Mm -hmm. you can talk to. And they're like, hey, I get it. I'm with you. That's perfect. Somebody that's supporting you. On the other side, you need somebody that is not necessarily diametrically opposed, but somebody that is is challenging. Somebody that's like, Mm -hmm. I don't really buy into your your thing. And, and here's where the holes are in your logic. And here's where this doesn't work for me so that you have both sides that you're continually growing from both the encouragement. And like I said, I always call it loving discernment, this, this conflict of ideas. 
so that you become stronger in your own beliefs um, and stronger in the way that you look at them and the way you support them. Um, because I don't think any belief is just a solid piece of rock that never changes. I believe it constantly mutates and constantly becomes more mature. Um, and sometimes we have to, to add, subtract, and sometimes we get to a certain age in life and go, wow, you know, like Christianity to paganism. Hey, wow, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to jump threads, you know. Right. But I think we need those two mentors at some point um, to constantly be there for encouragement and challenge uh, so that we can grow. And I don't think most people have that, to be honest. No. Um, I think that a lot of people are flying blind and, and doing what they think is best. And that's great. Um, but I think getting hooked up with at least two mentors um, can lead to all kinds of growth and an explosion of wisdom that is beyond value. I agree 100%. I, um, you know, I don't think that just applies to spirituality, too. I, mean, I think you apply it to politics, you know, I, I'm a very left, uh, well, I don't really care about politics anymore. I think it's, I've kind of hopped <laughs> off that train, but when I, most of my life, I've would consider myself a socialist long before it was popular. Sure. Um, and, you know, so I don't even get along with Democrats generally. In fact, more often than not, I tend to disagree more with Democrats than I do Republicans. Well, it's not that I don't disagree more with Republicans. It's just that I already know that I have a, an opposing view. And so sure. then sometimes my relationship with, with Democrats tends to be more inflammatory because we're closer on the ideas of issues, but we're fighting about the why and the how. Whereas with uh, like more conservative folks, I can already say like, you believe this, I believe this. We may not see eye to eye, but fine. But it is what it is. But I still have, over, I mean, my mom's conservative. She's from Texas. She has voted Republican since the seventies and she's not particularly a conservative person in her life, but she will vote for them no matter what she's locked into that path. Uh, my buddy, Joel, whom I had on the podcast, you know, a few episodes ago, more conservative guy. He and I do not see eye to eye. I mean, I, I even had people after the podcast be like, you guys didn't really agree on a lot, but you, but I appreciated the <laughs> civility of right. the conversation because Joel's one of my oldest friends and I love him dearly. Right. So I don't have to agree with everything he says because the way we interact with one another is respectful and it challenges me sometimes, you know, I don't know if you're ever on Facebook, but I, um, I still have it. And every day it shows you like on this day in yep. whatever number of years back. And sometimes it posts my post and I look at them from just a few years ago and I'm like, wow, how, fixated my belief was then versus now as I've interacted with more diverse folks. And I realized that, and, and I don't want to get down the pandemic uh, hole, but like, even in that, even in, in my understanding of what the best ways to, to, to enact wide public safety, right. Has evolved a little bit over time. Because I've heard other opinions. And at very minimum, I find myself more open to listening. Even if my fundamental beliefs have not changed, I'm more open to listening without getting irritated and angry, even, even in the last year. Because coming out of having COVID myself, man, if you had any stance other than mine, I was going to, I was angry because <laughs> I just went through hell. And how dare you minimize this, this thing that I went through, right? Sure. Fair, but over time, I've re I've come to at least understand why people might have a slightly different opinion. They have their own experiences. They weren't laid up in bed for a month. 
I was. That's going to inform my opinion more than someone who's not had it or someone who comes from a different region. I mean, I'm from, we're from Texas. I'm sure folks there have, you know, their own opinions. And so that's where I think there's a benefit because if nothing else, it, it encourages one to listen and understand Mm -hmm. even at the, if at the end of the day, it's the old uh, agree to disagree. Absolutely. Which is okay. Yeah, it is. And it really is. And I think that's the, the, where we get to the point of communication and conversation is learning how to listen and learning how to find those common grounds. Crowley talks about, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, he talks about how two different types of people can, will see a, an event very differently. Uh, and he talks about the peasants. You know, he was in a weird aristocratic mode that he had, but he talked about the peasants would have very opposing views to a particular incident. But those, but historians, still on opposite sides, but historians, learned people would look at that uh, same incident and have far more uh, same opinions. It would have far more in con- uh, connection with each other mm-hmm. over that event because the higher you go in your attainment, the higher you go through your initiations, the more experience you have in life, the more you start to see somebody else's perspective and the elephant, to use that one particular uh story, the elephant starts to look like an elephant, right you know? um, You start to see the whole picture and you can both stand on opposite sides of the elephant and describe what you're seeing and go, ah, you're talking about an elephant, you know, uh, without having to go see that other side, right. having to, to experience all that. You can take somebody's experience for yourself through empathy or through, um, you know, caring and stuff like that and see that opposing view and go, ah, we're talking about the same thing just from two different sides. Great. I'm glad we're on the same page. So, Well, I think there's a lot of confusion. I, I forget if it was you that shared it with me, but there's confusion about what's objective and what's subjective. And this idea that everyone's entitled to an opinion, which is true if you understand what an opinion is versus yes. what's not an opinion. Uh, me, the debate on whether or not we like chocolate ice cream is valid. If, you're, if you don't like chocolate ice cream, it's perfectly entitled to your opinion. Yes. If I like it, I'm perfectly entitled to my opinion. If I decide to tell you that chocolate is made of uh, iron shavings, that is no longer an opinion. That right. is a, a objectively false statement. And I think that part of this confusion is that confusion, which is the idea that we oftentimes just think any wild idea that we have is, is objectively true. And it's not. And when you start to recognize that in yourself – then you start to understand, well, someone's subjective opinion is formed by their environment, their experiences, their traumas, their highs, their lows. And you've experienced some version of that yourself. Yes. And that's why yours formed. And that doesn't mean there's not still objective falsehoods and truths. It just means that there's a lot of gray area that perhaps we, if we get right down to it, have more common ground than we do disagreements. Certainly. And that is an article I think I, I did share with you. I know I posted it online, yeah. but it's one that um, I provide m- the, my students at the beginning of every semester. And it's, you're not entitled to your opinion. Now you're entitled to your informed opinion. And those are mm-hmm. two different things. And it's like you said, we can disagree over the, the value of chocolate ice cream. You know, I happen to prefer vanilla. You happen to prefer chocolate. Our opinion really in the long run of life doesn't matter. My opinion of climate change of the climate concerns that we have 
we can see those. We can empirically see those changes. Now, we can disagree on some of the details, but if we disagree that climate change is or isn't happening, we're now talking about the difference in informed versus uninformed opinion. Right. And we need to address how to become informed. And we can only do that through study, through research, through experience. I, I want to throw that in there to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, we can only do that. And once we see that there's an informed opinion and not just some rash, I like chocolate ice cream going on, then we can talk. And I have found that my students have really responded to that really well. And the discussions that we have are intense because these kids go out, and I, I hate home kids, but my students go out and they really search hard to back up their opinions when they come to class. And when we have those days that we're sharing opinions and sharing facts, they really come prepared because they know they can't just pop off and say, well, you know, I, I like or don't like, or I think this, you need to back it up. Why? And we can argue the studies all day long, but the bottom line is you came prepared to back up your argument. You know, now let's talk. And I think that's very important that we don't see a lot of is we see a lot of misinformation. We see a lot of, I know blah. And it's like, you've read what three books. (laughs) I mean, I can tell by what you read, by the way you phrase that statement that you've read a, B and C, maybe D, but you've missed the, the larger picture. And right. how do we, and I think this is the other thing we have a problem with, how do we lovingly through discernment approach somebody and say, look, you're, you're wrong, you know, and let yeah. me show you why. And it's not that you're not on the right direction, but what you've stated is, is here, here, here's some more. Let's encourage right. you to grow. Let's encourage you to find some depth. Let's encourage you to, to keep going um, in that, in that direction, because you're right on the right direction. It's just that this particular thing, you need a little help. And I don't yeah, know that so we have that ability yet. At least not online. I think no, you could well. do it in person. Yeah. You know, I think like if you had like, well, look, you are doing it, right? You're doing it with your, your students and, well, and it, maybe, well, well I was going to say, maybe it's, it's the institution that <laughs> helps give you authority to be, ha- be able to have that conversation with them. Sure. But I'll, I'll point out, you're right. Online, I think would be difficult. Um, in my particular case, I had some really amazing um, older Thelemites that are still around that mm-hmm. were capable of taking me under their wing and mentoring me and go, you're so far off because you haven't read X, Y, and Z. We're going to provide that to you here. Yeah. Now, let's talk about it and see how your views shift and how they change. And I go, oh, my God. You know, I, I was, it's not that I was misinformed. I was uninformed. I, right. I didn't have all the resources to build uh, an, a, an informed opinion on that. And I look back and I go, oh, wow, this is just, it's mind blowing. But it was only through the loving correction of people that had been doing this longer, that had the wisdom to go, hey, you know, stop. But the other side of that is I had to be willing. Right. I had to be willing to listen. And I, and I can't speak to anybody. So I don't know. I don't know how willing people are to listen. If Twitter's any indication, then they're not. But I don't know that that's necessarily a good thermometer for the rest of our uh, community at large. No, I don't think we should because, again, it's it's really literally a very minute proportion of people. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about 11% are active on Twitter of the entire U.S., how many of those people are Thelemites? Right. I... <laughs> fractions. We're just fractions on fractions, right? So we're really getting the smallest sample size possible. And it's generally a certain type of person who's going to be, who's going to gravitate towards these mediums. And there's, 
probably hundreds of Thalemites around the world who aren't active online or aren't open online who are doing their own thing. I have a buddy who got offline entirely. He was like, he, he dabbled into the world of holding classes of, uh, and he did a good job. He was more of a moderator than a teacher, but he, he decided wasn't for him. It was not good for his practice. It wasn't good for himself. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to be on in the online hamster wheel and he got off and he's never been happier because just because he had experience in magic doesn't mean he had to be a teacher or a leader or anything else. And, um, and so I certainly think that we should not use, and I, I got to remind myself of this all the time too, like that, well, there's like what, two or three talking head to Nemites online. What is the, you know, what in proportion to the world, what does that really mean? Why do sure. we care? Well, and um, I think that comes to the, the conversation and I think you're making this point brilliantly that to grow, we need intimate relationships mm-hmm. and we need intimate friendships. And, and again, one of those things you have to be careful with intimate, I don't mean sexual. I mean, somebody that you can care about and trust that you can open up and say, this is how I feel. And this is what I think and have the honest feedback loop of you're going to tell me the way it is. And it might hurt my feelings, but it's for my best good or somebody mm-hmm. that agrees on a regular basis. Cause they're on the same page and I'm like, okay, you're, you're doing great, but here's some more. Right. You know, um, I, there's, I have said this, there's not a day to go by that I don't learn something new or have somebody come across like one of my mentors to go, Hey, by the way, that statement you made the other day, here's some more information that you might want to look at, you know, not change your opinion, not you're wrong, right. but here's some more on that topic that I don't think you've read. And, uh, some of it I may have, some of it I may not have, but rereading it again, even if I have rereading it again, under that kind of mentor push you're like, what am I supposed to be seeing? So you're looking at it a little harder and you go, oh, there it is. Got it. Right. And like, like I said, that, that one sentence that you've been reading over and over and over and over again suddenly pops out and goes, oh, got it. Got it. And I may have been right. wrong by a word or I may have been wrong by a paragraph or I may have been wrong completely. But having that single revelation is like mind blowing to be able to move forward in growth and change as needed. So, you know, as, as a member of the OTO, do you feel like, I mean, there's no right path per se inherently, but I, I sometimes think that part of these, these things that we realize are, that we recognize are missing the, the interconnectivity of folks. I think partially that is perpetrated by the lack of institutions in our society. You know, once you get out of high school and college you're really kind of on your own. There are no more, there's, there's very few of, uh, you know, clubs to join or, 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 you know, when I was in Syracuse, there was a woman's um, club essentially that owns this building and they, they gather and they meet and that's a rarity. We don't really see that anymore. I mean, churches provide that uh, to some degree, but, but outside of mainstream religion, there are very few places that people can go to commune in a, meaningful way that's sort of been replaced by bars yes which which do not provide that even the coffee shop as i romanticize it from the 90s the 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 illustrious coffee shop conversation doesn't exist in the same it's all been replaced by starbucks yes which you can't get any conversations in and they want to kick you out as soon as possible so i don't know if it's necessary uh, orders per se but does it feel like to you that maybe creating some kind of infrastructure might help facilitate these more good faith discussions and growth? Yes. Um, I can say absolutely. Yes. 
Um, I believe we're not done with orders yet. Mm-hmm. I believe that's a, I think that's on the, the down slope. I do mm-hmm. believe they're starting to, to realize that this kind of hierarchical Victorian cosplay type of approach um, doesn't really work. It doesn't really provide the infrastructure. Uh, I think that's a great word. The infrastructure for community. Um, mm-hmm. it, it fosters people to be in a hierarchical cliques. Um, I'm at certain, certain degree and I have these secrets and all this, whether or not they do, but it creates this kind of cliquish environment. Um, kind of like high school. I -hmm. think though, that having a broad base of infrastructure, a broad base of types of community, including orders, as long as they Mm -hmm. exist, I think is the healthy way to move forward. I think we need, and I, and I get teased about this all the time, but we need a Protestant, um, movement or mm-hmm. type of movement, not necessarily the protest part, but a, a Protestant selection of uh, organizations to balance out this kind of Catholic magisterium approach that the OTO has taken. And mm-hmm. I think the OTO serves a great place. Uh, I, I mean, I've kind of uh, stopped my association with it, even though I'm formally still a member. I have nothing against them. Um, but uh, I think there's a place for them for now. I just think we need to expand our idea of what a thelemic organization looks like, because so far, my observation is everybody that splits off from the from the order turns around and creates a new order. It's an OTO light. It's an OTO right. hybrid. It's an OTO, you know, structure, but their own flavor. Um, there's no real separation from the way the OTO operates. Now, there may be some fundamental ethical differences, but structurally, we're still looking at hierarchies. We're still looking at uh, domination of, of peers. I think we need a Protestant approach where we have a more leader-led uh, uh, or even mm-hmm. a congregation-led type approach. Um, what I think of and what I would love to, to get together someday is more of a Quaker approach where mm-hmm. it's very much a, we're all together. There's no formal leader other than for administration purposes. There's no formal leader. It's a matter of being moved to speak, to be able to teach on your own. Maybe it's a sentence. Maybe it's um, a word that comes to mind. Maybe it's some experience that you had during the week that you share, but it's, it's not a formalized preaching per se. Right. And there's no right. head. We're all equal um, in that sense. So I think that, and in that case, you get where we were talking the other day about children. And I made the statement, Crowley felt that children needed to be included at dinner time because the nonsense they babble could reveal something, could kick something in your head that makes you go, oh, you know, I thought about. And right. I think that, I think our services need to be the same. This whole naked woman on the altar is great and fundamental and nice, but we need to have something that allows for the babble of children. And children right. in that case could be, um, you know, three or 30 or you know, 50, I, you know, 52 and a kid. <laughs> so, you know, the babble of children, I think is, is something that we don't do enough of. I, I agree. And I think as an educator, you'll appreciate this. When I was coming up, the classes, I had a very love hate relationship with school. I was able to sort of get by because I, I'm pretty smart and I retain information easily. So I didn't have to work terribly hard if I'm being honest, uh, passing tests, but the classes, but mostly was an interest thing. I just found a lot of the classes not interesting. And the ones that I did find interesting were the ones where the teacher essentially led the discussion, sort of moderated this discussion, but it was exactly that. It was a discussion amongst the students in the classroom. 
And in the midst of that discussion, we all became more educated from it. It wasn't simply an educator sitting at a pulpit preaching to us, this is the this is what this book means. This is what this history lesson means, whatever it was. Let's take this topic. Let's have a discussion about it. Let's everyone chime in. And I found that that to be far more impactful on me and, and the retention stuck and I gained deeper knowledge than was on the page or even what the topic was because of that shared experience of conversation and uh, interaction with one another. Absolutely. Um, this past semester, I had kind of a half and half. And the, the biggest comments that I got were those discussions were the most impactful. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of, uh, I told my students, you're, you're conditioned all through school to sit in rows, you know, one, one behind each other. And the only thing that does mm-hmm. is you're looking at the person in front of you, the back of their head, and you're not listening to what I have to say. You couldn't care less. But if I put you in a circle and we have a discussion, you have to face your peers, all of them, somehow. You have to face your mm-hmm. peers and you have to talk. And what I found was the most constructive comments I got at the end of the semester was those worked. Those were great. Sitting in a row, listening to a lecture, which I tried to do one textbook lecture out of my three days, uh, just so I knew they were getting the textbook because I'm supposed to. Um, They found those the most boring and the least helpful. But those discussions of sitting in the round really led to them growing. I mean, I had several people say that about their growth. And so my next semester, um, not this one, in fall, I'm going to go to a completely, we're all in the round, period, no matter what. Every day, we're in the round. And it's going to be more like a fireside chat, having a conversation about the materials um, on our three days. And I think it's going to work. I think it's going to be splendid. And I think that can translate into our own communities of how do we Mm -hmm. work together? How do we communicate together? Um, I think it could be online in the sense of like a a Zoom call or or something like that, where you have multiple people. But the idea is we all get to look at each other. We all have to acknowledge each other as human beings, as Thelemites or whoever's participating. But we have to acknowledge each other when we speak and when we listen. Absolutely. And, and so much so that I, I love that term into the round. And I hope that those listening take that. And because I think that means something. When you say, well, let's go into the round, that already conveys an image of of shared knowledge, of facing one another, everything you just said, like that, that is impactful just saying that. And I, and, and I, I would urge people to take that term and, and apply it. Let's go into the round. Oh, you have a difference in opinion. Let's go into the round. Let's go. Let's Absolutely. talk. Let's, let's, let's enter the, the Thunderdome, so to speak. Yeah. Let's, you know, and let's, and that's really- let's commune together. I, I like yes. that. Let's commune together. And how do we do that? And my biggest thing has always been break bread. Anytime yeah. you have a meal, it's hard to be, it's hard to be angry at somebody when you're eating. Yeah. You know, especially carbs. But, yeah, <laughs> actually. But it, and, it, and in that sense, it's easy to talk to somebody over a meal because first of all, you're feeding the body. Mm-hmm. Now you're feeding the mind because you're having a conversation and what you take from it, you're feeding the soul or you're feeding the spirit. And so having a meal and communing together over a meal solves, or I say solves, um, provides for, all three aspects of ourselves, the body, the mind, and our soul. And I think that's extremely important that we get that down and that we work together towards that communion um, that is about each other. It's not about standing in front of somebody and taking a wafer. It's about communion. It's about communication. Right. And uh, I think it's important. 
I love that. Absolutely. 100%. So for people who are coming away from this and they want to follow you on Twitter or they want to connect with you or whatever it may be, maybe people in your area, like where can they find you? Where is the best way for them to learn more about you and, and your experiences and what you share? Sure. Um, I'm currently, uh, I'm currently on face on Facebook. Um, I have a public uh, Facebook page there that I update on a, on a semi regular basis. Um, Instagram is around, um, but for the most part, because of some professional issues that I haven't worked out for myself, I mm-hmm. did separate a professional, uh, profile in several areas from a personal. So my, um, personal profile on, uh, Twitter is Aramidic life 93. Um, it would have to be a request. I'll, I'll approve just about anybody as long as I can tell they're not one of my students. Um, <laughs> and then, um, that's about it. <laughs> um, Facebook is, is I'm not trying, I'm trying to get rid of it. I'm working on my way yeah. of, like you said, I'm it's there, but I'm trying to move everything away from that. Um, and then I have a website, bishopharbor.com um, that awesome. I post at fairly regularly as well. Well, I, I appreciate this conversation very much. I was really looking forward to it. And it's so nice to be able to discuss topics that oftentimes are just flame wars online in a way yes. that, I hope that people gain as much from it as, as I have, because it, it really does reestablish a respect for this really amazing spiritual path that I hope that more people will at least take an interest in and learn from uh, beyond sort of the inner dynamic, high school dynamics that can sometimes be perpetrated on the, the internet. And, and I think that um, if nothing else, regardless of whatever your path is, be it spiritual or intellectual or otherwise, we come out of this with a better idea of how to foster it in a healthy environment. Absolutely. And, and, and I so appreciate your st- time. Thanks for letting me be on. And it's of been course. exciting. Thanks for the conversation. It's, it's been great. Absolutely. It's been all my pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure we'll chat again online and, and hopefully we'll have you back too. Cause we could have kept talking. I'm sure. I, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> as we're prone to do. <laughs> it, it happens. But uh, again, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I want to thank Bishop once again for being such a gracious and, uh, awesome guest host today i really as as i've talked about this at the top of the podcast i really enjoyed this conversation i enjoyed the concepts of entering the round enjoyed discussing some of the ways in which we can move off these very limiting platforms that offer us no hope for nuance and start thinking about other ways to figure out our differences and share our insights And through discussion, and I know this term gets used often poorly, but through discourse, true discourse, in good faith, we can grow uh, not only individually, but our communities as well. And the suggestion that perhaps it's as simple as breaking bread, while simple, is, is profound in its simplicity. Perhaps we need to start looking at moving beyond social media as our sole source of bonding with others who share common interests. I've been thinking about this lately about practical media, physical media, and how if we are to pass along things that we cherish, old movies we grew up with, uh, books that we loved, we can't rely on digital downloads to exist in 20, 30 years. 
For anyone who's ever bought a movie or bought a CD through Amazon Prime or iTunes, you know that the moment they lose their license, no matter what you paid for, you don't actually own it. That it's really for rent. And so, as I've been thinking about that and thinking about you know starting to move back towards phys- you know owning physical media, so that one day, thirty years down the line. I can pass this on to someone who maybe is not aware of the greatness that is Blade Runner. I think, too, we should start thinking about the limitations that digital communities provide us, the, the, the fleetingness of them. And perhaps it's time to start moving those relationships into the real world, off the digital spaces and into the diners, at the dinner table, breaking the bread, and having the discussions face-to-face so that we move past these animated barbs that we toss one against one another and start communing in the way that we were intended as human beings. So thank you all once again for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to the insights and perspectives of Bishop. I certainly did. Please follow him on social media if you'd like to continue to uh, learn and gleam information from him. And I will definitely have him on very, very soon because I am sure we could easily put another two hours to the record books. And if you're worried about this podcast being fleeting like all digital media, download it as well. Put it on a hard drive. Let's hold on to the things that we cherish. And that includes and is especially true for our relationships with each other, our friendships, and our larger interest-led communities. Thank you all once again. I appreciate you. Hope you all having a wonderful week. And until next time, gold rings on you all.